Today, we hear about the amazing true story of two men and how they survived the eruption of Mount St. Helens. This is Casual History. Washington State Deputy Sheriff looked suspiciously at the motorcycle strapped to the back of this odd little French car. The motorcycle was a recently repaired Honda 90. The driver, Roger Rogers, kept a neutral expression as the officer examined his pass for the red zone that now surrounded the volcano Mount St. Helens. Rogers knew everything was in order. Normally, Rogers didn't really care about the rules. He was a trespasser. The 29-year-old regularly climbed Portland city bridges, radio towers, and high-rises, often at night to avoid police. He had also recently lost his job as a radio engineer, so work no longer interfered with his exploits. But the newly installed tight security around Mount St. Helens made compliance necessary. The officer went ahead and waved him through, and Rogers drove into the red zone. Even if his pass hadn't worked, he would have found another way in. Rogers knew the terrain surrounding this mountain better than anyone. Nobody was going to stop him from his grand plan, hiking to the newly formed Mount St. Helens crater, and he was going to do it on the 18th of May, 1981, the anniversary of the day the mountain nearly took his life. Mount St. Helens was one of the three snow-capped cascades visible from the city of Portland, each one as triangular as a kid's drawing. For centuries, Mount St. Helens was known to the Cowlitz people as La Loeta, or the one who smokes. But in the 91 years since Washington had joined the United States in 1889, the mountains had been silent. Many of the people who vacationed in the lodges and cabins in Mount St. Helens shadow had a hard time believing it was really a volcano. That changed on the 20th of March, 1980. A 4.0 earthquake kicked off nearly continuous rumblings, sending avalanches of snow down the mountain slopes and cracking the glaciers that ringed the summit. On the 27th of March, Roger Roberts drove up to the top of Portland's West Hills for a better view as Mount St. Helens' summit poked through the layer of clouds that flung a column of ash into the sky. His whole life, Roger had shifted from obsession to obsession, conquering one subject and moving on to the next. Now his brain was latched on Mount St. Helens. Robert Rogers had shoulder-length brown hair and blue eyes behind large round glasses. Before his doomed stint as a radio engineer, he attended Portland State University, but he had dropped out before finishing a degree. As the volcano spewed smoke and ash, Rogers strapped on a pair of skis and meticulously mapped the web of lodging roads crisscrossing the forest. He spent the next few weeks covertly hiking into the volcano's crater and distributing rock samples and photographs to geologists in Portland State University, even as the mountain's north side began to bulge. The scientists at Portland State didn't condone his shady collection process, but data was data and Rogers had plenty of it. The U.S. Forest Service, the organization in charge of Mount St. Helens, requested assistance from law enforcement to keep their employees and to help keep people away from the area, so Rogers avoided them too. The morning of the 17th of May in 1980 was warm and clear, a rarity for the spring in the Pacific Northwest. Rogers, who had no plans for the day, decided to return to Mount St. Helens. The weather would be perfect for mapping more lodging roads. Rogers drove his usual route when he noticed a Ford Pinto parked off to the side. He pulled over and quickly peered into the windows, noticing an ice axe in the back seat, the kind required for summiting Mount St. Helens. Curious, Rogers went looking ahead for the vehicle's owner. 
Near the road stood a man facing away from him, staring up at the mountain. As the man turned, Rogers realized that he was wearing a Forest Service uniform. The two men stared at each other. Rogers decided to take the risk. He said, If you're going to try to climb up that sucker, I can help. Originally from the Southwest, Francesco Venezuela had recently transferred from New Mexico to Washington. His first day as recreational coordinator for the National Forest, the federal organization in charge of Mount St. Helens and the surrounding woodlands, was tomorrow. That meant he wasn't supposed to be in the red zone yet. In fact, recreation coordinators weren't supposed to be in the red zone at all, but he did want to summit Mount St. Helens. So Venezuela got into the passenger seat, and together he and Roger started their drive. Before long, they encountered a zone called a clear cut, the tree cover ripped away and exposing the area to prying eyes. They stashed the vehicle in the last remaining grove of trees and then continued on foot. Across the river was a lone orange tent, its owner nowhere to be seen. So the two men reached the Sheep Canyon Trailhead, the official edge of the red zone. Valenzuela began to feel nervous. After all, he wasn't just risking his life if he went further, he was also risking his job. In response to Valenzuela's nervousness, Rogers suggested they come back at 3 a.m., and they both agreed. Well before sunrise, the two men woke in the chilly stillness of pre-dawn. Venezuela was still feeling sleepy. In the early light of the dawn, he wandered over to a cluster of trees and lay down on a log. Rogers continued up the timberline with his camera, where he took a picture of the sun rising over the mountain. It was a perfect day for a climb. Venezuela sat down on a stump and began peeling an orange when Rogers quickly made up a story about fishing. Nearby, the radio squawked. Now there's a new one. It just opened up there, said the voice on the radio. It was Gary Martin, another volunteer operator. Everyone looked up. A tan-colored cloud had erupted from the mountain near Wishbone Glacier. It's coming out of the crater, Martin continued, going straight up, going straight up the south wall of the crater and coming over the top. Valenzuela, who was still peeling his orange, felt the earth move beneath his feet. Then a black cloud shot from the crater. Gray clouds followed, billowing out of the north flank of the mountain. Roger sprinted back to his car to find his camera as Venezuela exclaimed in shock and excitement. A big slide is coming off the west slope, Martin said on the radio. Now we've got a whole big great eruption out of the crater, and another one opened up on the west side. Rogers desperately tried to focus his camera on the rolling ash cloud as he frantically hit the shutter button over and over and over. Look, there it goes, Venezuela shouted. The whole north side of the mountain is sliding away. And in that moment, Rogers' camera jammed. Without the camera, there was no reason to stay. So Rogers and Venezuela ran for their vehicles. The black cloud had now obscured the ridge where the operator was stationed. Rogers was already racing down the logging road, followed by Venezuela's Ford Pinto. For a mile, their only road was headed out east, straight towards the volcano. The gray cloud raced towards them like a mass of foam, flanked by streaks of yellow lightning. Along the side of the road, tall white alders bent in the fierce wind of the eruption. Rogers kept his foot on the gas as the Semeca continued to barrel towards the volcano at 60 miles an hour, until he reached a fork in the road. In his panic, Rogers couldn't remember which way led back to Cougar, and in his doubt, he swerved to the right. Valenzuela followed very close behind him. After Rogers saw another couple behind them turn left, Rogers slammed on the brakes. The old Semeca spun into the unpaved road and skidded into a wide mud hole. Behind him, Valenzuela frantically tried to avoid hitting his new companion. His Ford Pinto swerved off the road and into the mud as well. Rogers slammed on the gas again, 
with his rear-engine vehicle crawled forward into solid ground. With the rising ash cloud from the volcano above them, Valenzuela tried to dislodge his car from the muck. When that proved impossible, he just threw open his car door and ran in with Rogers. The moment he was inside, Rogers hit the gas. The couple must be wrong. This had to be the road back to Cougar, he thought. Now their view of the volcano was completely obscured with the rising cloud, but they could hear it rumbling. As the road took a sharp bend, Rogers realized he had no idea where he was and needed to get his bearings. So Rogers pulled over, and the two of them jumped out of the vehicle. A hot wind whipped up their clothes and hair. Above them, the billowing black cloud of ash had formed into a massive column, climbing high into the sky before flattening out like the head of a mushroom. The hazy edge of the cloud blocked the sun and plunged the world into an eclipse-like darkness. Flashes of lightning hit the north ridge, where trees had just been standing only moments before, now lay on the ground like toppled matchsticks. Rogers and Venezuela hiked 60 feet and found a river. On the opposite bank was the orange tent. The station wagon that was near it earlier was now nowhere to be seen, and in the distance a tree was struck by lightning and it burst into flames. Rogers realized then that he had taken a wrong turn. The couple that had taken the left fork, which led to Merrill Lake and back to Cougar. But rather than get back in his car, Rogers reloaded his camera, and the two men leaned their heads back further and further trying to see the top of the eruption column, and they couldn't. For a moment, the cloud shifted, and the mountain was visible. The men stared in shock. The whole damn top of the mountain is gone, Rogers shouted over the deafening roar of the eruption. In a matter of minutes, Mount St. Helens had gone from Washington's fifth highest peak to his 13th. The wind shifted, blowing in violent gusts towards the volcano to fill the updraft of the massive cloud. Papers fluttered out of the car's open windows. Then, out of the haze, a red pickup truck barreled towards them, fleeing the volcano. Venezuela ran down the road and grabbed the edge of the open window as the vehicle slowed down. My car's in a ditch, he shouted. Help me pull it out. No time, said the driver. We gotta go. Venezuela continued to grip the window as the vehicle crawled forward. Just get in, said the driver. No, it's all right. Venezuela had let go. The red truck prominently kicked up speed and disappeared minutes into a cloud of dust. We can't just leave your car back up there, Roger shouted. The authorities would make sure we would never get back in and you'll probably get fired. The two of them got back into their car and drove back down the road to the Ford Pinto, where they began to hack away the mud surrounding the tires with their ice axes. When that failed... Rogers retrieved some of the nylon rope he had tied to the front of the Pinto and attached it to the back of his car. With both men hitting the gas, the Pinto finally crawled out of the mud. That was when Rogers realized he was missing his last roll of film. The last thing Valenzuela wanted to do was spend time looking for a film canister, but Rogers refused to be dissuaded. They had to go back to their campsite and find it. Soon he was back in his Ford Pinto, driving north towards the site they had just abandoned. As they approached the site... Roger spotted a yellow film canister on the road. He slowed the vehicle and opened his car door and leaned out as far as he could while keeping one hand on the steering wheel. His fingers closed around the film without stopping the vehicle. The two cars spun around and once again began to drive towards the volcano on the road to Cougar. But now the ash cloud had sunk to the ground, reducing visibility to only a few feet in front of them. The two men put on their headlights and windshield wipers as their cars crawled forward. 
That's when Roger saw a yellow caterpillar earthmover he had thought he remembered from the Y-shaped intersection. He went ahead and turned left. Behind him, Valzuela's Pinto disappeared into the cloud of ash, his car tires kicked up. Two gleaming headlights, the only sign that he was still following Valenzuela, opened his window. Orange cinders drifted down like snowflakes. Then, all of a sudden in the distance, Roger spotted a yellow outline. It was the caterpillar. For the second time, they had driven in another circle. Roger stopped the car and got out to talk to Valenzuela. If we go out into this again, he said, as a sulfur-scented ash rained down upon them and the ground steamed from his shoes, we're only going to get lost and maybe get into something more serious. Valenzuela parked next to Rogers and waited for the road to clear. The world outside his car was dark as night, the springtime Sunday morning completely swallowed by volcanic ash. He stared out into the blackness through the windshield as the radio continued to play cheerful music, oblivious to the destruction around him. He thought, I can't be about to die on my first day of work. Then, on the western horizon, a spot of daylight broke through the black cloud. As Venezuela watched the gap and the ash begin to grow, the impenetrable black curtain thinned, illuminating their surroundings. The men soon realized that they were in a clear cut. Before them, the volcano continued to vomit black clouds of ash. It occurred to Rogers that he had a front row seat to a once-in-a-lifetime event. He couldn't leave now. Valenzuela agreed and as the ash cloud billowed into the sky, Rogers took photos with his recovered film, and Valzueta made a lettuce, tomato, and cheese sandwiches. Their meal was gritty with volcano ash. Eventually, after a long wait, the ash cloud lifted. Miraculously, they could see that the road from Goat Mountain to Cougar was intact, but there's still one more thing that Rogers wanted to do. After they had driven several miles, Rogers pulled over. He instructed Valenzuela to stand in front of the ash plume, then laid down on the ground with his camera pointing up. Snapping a picture with the mushroom cloud in the background, it was the perfect angle for the volcano hero photo. Valenzuela did the same for him, and then they both went their separate ways. In the days following the eruption, Rogers called the Cowlitz County Sheriff's Department to report the orange tent. He didn't leave his name, but he kept expecting to hear that the person staying there was dead or injured. He didn't know that in the hours following the eruption, the Red Cross had received more than 3,400 tips in 48 hours. The local community was too overwhelmed to sort through all the information being offered. Two weeks after the eruption, though, Rogers visited a U-developed darkroom in Longview. As he paid for some prints about the volcano, he noticed a small photograph of Mount St. Helens tacked onto the register. I know where that photograph was taken, he told the woman behind the counter. She immediately burst into tears. Through her sobs, the story came out. This was the last photo taken by Robert Landsberg, a freelance photographer who had spent several weeks working near Mount St. Helens. Landsberg had left the photograph now tacked to the register the day before the eruption and not been heard from since. We think he might have been in the same spot of the morning the volcano erupted, but we don't know where he is, she cried. Did he have a green station wagon, Rogers asked. Oh God, how did you know? Rogers immediately went home to call Valenzuela, in the weeks following the eruption, Valenzuela let him know that he had flown a helicopter looking for the man in the orange tent, but there was nothing. Not even his station wagon was visible. Landsberg's station wagon was found four miles from the volcano, catapulted down an embankment and blown into four large pieces. A trail of auto debris led to the scene where Robert Landsberg had come to rest. It had taken 17 days for rescue workers to find his body. He had been less than a mile from Rogers and Valenzuela that fateful morning. And the moments before the explosion reached him, 
Landsberg had rewound his film in his camera and put it back in his case. Then, he put the film in his backpack with his wallet and laid on top of the bag, shielding it from the blast. Later, Rogers would eventually summit Mount St. Helens and is quoted to say that it was the most beautiful thing he had ever saw. They would both also find out that they were witness to Gary Martin's last words. The volunteer radio operator had died in the blast, reaching his camper van as he attempted to flee. His recordings preserved on their tape. Robert Lambert's final photographs, developed from the film he protected by throwing his body over it, were published in the 1981 Mountain St. Helens edition of National Geographic. The haunting images of swirling rock and streaks of static are some of the closest to an erupting volcano ever taken. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed this week's podcast and let me know what you thought about it in our comments. You can reach out to us on our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Casual X History. So if you really like this, please let us know. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.